Welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I am your host, Julian Guderlai, and I'm here today with Hamilton Souther. Hamilton is a CEO, a master shaman, and also the founder of Blue Morpho. And I'm super excited for the conversation we're about to embark on today. Welcome, Hamilton. Oh, thank you so much, Julian. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I'm stoked to, to be here together. You've been on quite a podcast tour in, in general, have so much to share about this journey of Blue Morpho, the role of uh, plant medicine in your life, the wisdom that has been imparted on uh, in, into your journey from elders uh, of the Amazon. And also, you know, uh, lots of new ventures coming up where kind of the, the overlay between what plants can teach us and how we then embody and bring this into life uh, and into this modern world. Um, so you embody that really, really, you know, um, powerfully. So I'm, I'm stoked to to hear about all those details. But let's start for everyone who's who's new to your story, just with a part of the beginning of Blue Morpho, maybe, which is your uh, your center and also the the company that that you've built and and your your first call into the jungle, maybe even if you want to start there. Yeah, in uh, 2001, I had a spontaneous awakening. And through that process, I was called to the Amazon and uh, really to embark on a major plant medicine journey. And it was, you know, a life changing, life course changing and direction changing moment for me. I went into the Amazon pretty incredulous thinking, you know, is it true that there could be an apprenticeship waiting for me? Is it even possible? How could this happen? And it turned out that it was true. And I became one of the first Westerners to be invited into an Amazonian lineage of plant medicine healers. And to be able to cross that barrier of, of the intergenerational teachings that got passed down from grandfather to father to, to son. And I got invited basically as a blood relative into the community, which was just an incredible honor and uh, started a path that, you know, has carried me forward on the last 20 years of my life and the embodiment of plant medicine and the, you know, ideas of using it to heal people, the understandings of it as a medicinal plant, and then seeing how we could use it to enhance consciousness and ultimately for innovation. Um, my journey started pretty regular, really. I graduated from college having studied anthropology. I was young and fresh and looking for what was going to come next. And, you know, I didn't think it was going to be plant medicines or shamanism or anything like that. But, um, you know, life can really come in and just swoop you away. And when I learned that there was something more than just the mental box that I was in and the experiences that I was having, that there was really something truly beyond that in the unexplored and in the yet to be discovered, that was just an incredible adventure and something that was amazing to embark on. Yeah, I bet. I mean, for a lot of people in the West and, you know, me included, I grew up in Central Europe. Um, plant medicines are a pretty distant um, topic and tool. Like many of us don't have any framing or connection to it. Obviously there's been a, um, like a renaissance in the last even just 10 years. I mean, you know, 20 years uh, for you and um, in the last decade or two, I guess, but maybe just to set the ground um, in this episode today, like if someone's new to ayahuasca, like what are the few things they should know and how should they approach it? Um, before we go deeper into your journey here and uh, what what are the gifts you're bringing out of 20 years of this stewardship? Fundamentally, ayahuasca is an unbelievably potent plant medicine. And it's really simple in terms of the technology with the plants. It's a tea. You make it by boiling plants together. 
But what comes out of it is this incredibly strong purgative that has both psychiatric qualities to it and psychological qualities to it. And they really merge together in the experience. Um, you know, there isn't a culture in the Amazon that uses ayahuasca recreationally. So it doesn't fit within the concepts or the bucket of a recreational drug. It's managed entirely as a plant medicine and it's administered by people who train extensively to mm. uh, be able to wield it and utilize it with precision. So it's very different to, you know, the Western psychedelic culture in the idea of, you know, take this for a trip, maybe have an exploration, et cetera. In the Amazon, it's used really to heal mental and emotional traumas, physical traumas, and um, all different kinds of psychological or psychiatric illness that can come up during somebody's life. What I found really interesting when I first got into the Amazon was that they didn't have language. They literally didn't have vocabulary in their spoken language for anxiety or depression or PTSD or these kind of traumas that are so powerful in today's Western culture. And when I started to dig into that and I wanted to know why, and I got you know a little bit more inquisitive about it, I realized that's because they intervene with ayahuasca before these mm. illnesses become pronounced. And so right so after sense. illness or right after trauma or right after tragedy, they intervene with these plants and they go into a very neuroplastic event where you can really change the way the brain functions in a very positive way. And um, it's fundamentally, you know, part the, the pharmacology, the molecules that are inside ayahuasca. And then it's also the journey that it takes you on. And there's something very pronounced and special about the healing journeys in this moment that can culminate in a recognition that you've been healed. And so if you've had that moment of recognition where you say, wow, I'm healed, that stays with you. And it's very lucid. It's not like being drunk. So, so it's a, you know, you know, in your soul, in your heart that this healing has taken place. And so then when you come out of the journey, you can remember that and you can say, I have been healed. This is how it happened. And you can recount the tale. And it's just, you know, very, very potent expression of plant medicine. For people who, you know, who were just born to pharmacies and hospitals and things like that, we have to expand our idea of history a little bit more to think that the plant medicines have been part of our history for a very long time. So 10,000 years ago, there weren't pharmacies, there were plants and plant medicine was being used to heal literally everybody. Wind forward 10,000 years later, it's now mostly pharmaceuticals and we're seeing Western science now branch into uh, plant medicines and really study them as they're trying to, you know, gain better understanding around psychological illness and what to do about it. Hmm. Yeah, you're using two words there, um, you know, potent and precise. And that's also been my personal experience with ayahuasca and the shamans that have administered the experience. It's, it's very precise, actually, even just in the application of the setting, right? The bringing people together in a circle, depending on which tradition there's darkness or there's a fire and you, you're, you're, you're really, it's so far removed from this notion of recreational, uh, exploration. It's, it's really a sacred, but also like a deeply intentful and ultimately then very simple, precise yet simple uh, undertaking. Um, yeah, I mean, for you, it's taken over in a whole other level than for most people, because you were literally called into the Amazon, right? Um, you've had this 20 year journey now of being trained as, uh, you know, as you, as you mentioned, like, uh, a shaman in the lineage, uh, of Don Julio and his family fast forward 20 years later to where we're having this conversation today, Hamilton, what is, what, is, what can you tell, tell us about 
the gifts that you 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 you've brought back from these interactions with the plant because i um understand it like this that you know like kind of level one for many people it is to heal to purge to interact with some of these traumas or anxieties but then there's many many layers and degrees and levels to what the plant actually uh can guide us to and um at a certain place, it's really about what gifts are we bringing back to then implement and create into the grounded uh, physical world around us, right? And so um, I know you're you're gearing up to so many releases um, also in that in the tech space. So I'm super curious how you would describe that bridge of of, of learning with a plant, learning the wisdom, and then bringing things back down to earth. Yeah, it's been an incredible evolution in that sense. It started in my own personal healing and then exploration. And then it moved to training and learning how to use the plant in the traditional Amazonian way. And that takes a very long time. So, you know, it takes hundreds and hundreds of ceremonies and then thousands of them to be able to gain that proficiency. And so you train over decades of time. And during that, there are also, you know, many evolutions. So you start learning how to heal certain kinds of illnesses. And then as you ramp up, you can wield the ayahuasca in a way that can treat even more difficult or more complex illnesses. And so, you know, I spent a period of time really learning the healing arts. And then from there, um, you know, as you keep asking questions, and I had a unique uh, situation with this because of Blue Morpho. Blue Morpho was one of the first renowned ayahuasca centers and plant medicine centers in the world. And so we received guests from over 100 countries from all walks of life. And they would come with a mythological or a religious background or a spiritual background also from all over the world. And so then I was questioned and confronted from, you know, thousands of stories of people's journeys, all the philosophical questions that people get asked, like, what's the origin of the universe? And what's God? And What's spirit and, you know, what's medicine and why is there spirituality and why are there monotheistic and polytheistic religions? And, you know, what's Rumi talking about or what was Siddhartha talking about? Or, hey, why do you think Siddhartha left the palace? You know, just all the what's the Bhagavad Gita? It just goes on and on and on and on. And so that got me into philosophy. And then I started to question the binary dualistic philosophies, the light and the dark, the yin and yang, the beliefs around like you got to have to have the light. You have to have the dark. You hear these you know, sort of catchphrases and spirituality and stuff. And so I got really into philosophy and the idea of universal mysticism. And, and so that kicked off an entire exploration for a number of years on how we transcend dualistic framed thinking and how we move beyond the dualistic mind and the us versus them argument to where we get to the idea of one earth, one species, one humanity, one life force, one consciousness, one love, all is this field that we're all part of. And then, you know, it takes a while to learn how to to recognize that. And then we learned healing arts associated with that. And by the time we got to the oneness expression within ayahuasca, because the natives talk about it really in this very dualistic light and dark, you know, they're very rooted in that, like us in the forest kind of concept or, or us in illness. This, there's this kind of separation. We got into this idea of, you know, oneness, and then that led to consciousness. And then we started to think, well, if this is a tool to be able to enhance consciousness, you know, what can we do and what can we develop and what kind of framework can we give to that? And then it led to really the idea of a further reach and humanitarianism, how we could spread the teaching and the meaning associated with the, you know, the what you learn through ayahuasca ceremonies and ultimately bring that to more people. How could we positively affect the earth? How could we, um, you know, 
approach climate change? How could we use innovation as a way to be able to approach certain difficulties that people have like poverty? And we got into the innovation side of things, really utilizing the medicinal plants to create, to um, innovate, to invent, and then bring that truly back, truly back into tech projects, into crypto, blockchain, NFT projects, into climate change uh, projects that were focused around renewable proteins and renewable food sources for what will be really a massively expanding population here to 2050, 2080, you know. Right on. Yeah, I, I love where you, how you just kind of fast-tracked us through through that succession of stages that, that you went through personally, right? Again, like we talk about this often on Green Planet, Blue Planet, one layer is the understanding, the knowing, the intellectualization, the conceptualization. But you get, we're getting a concept from Hamilton here, but he's actually been on the journey of living that, embodying it, testing it, getting challenged, right? Upgrading it. And so at the end is this notion that there's innovation to be to be brought through the, the wisdom of the ayahuasca. Um, for all of us listening, it's like a fast track. But really to embody that and to truly understand what it means, I, I think it takes those hundreds or thousands of hours, right? To, to really master one's own, one's own craft like that. But let's talk about specifically ayahuasca and innovation and also this 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 idea um, that, you know, plant medicines are separated from, let's say, consciousness or are separated from technology. Right. As you just explained, it isn't quite like that. In fact, it all informs each other. And there is innovation that wants to come onto the planet and into the human realm, into the organic realm. Um, that we as humans are stewarding. And so when we are in the space with ayahuasca, we, we get insights, we get connection to this kind of innovation. Absolutely. I mean, first, when you, you see ayahuasca, you realize that there is an interface between you and everything around you. And what can seem inanimate becomes animate and alive. And you lose the separation that you feel between yourself and nature. And Typically, what people start to see in their visions is a kind of pixelation and then a kind of sacred geometry that is intradimensional and it's multidimensional. And you can see it between you and other participants. You can see it literally eyes wide open. You can see this uh, sacred geometry, sacred fractals, sacred patterns. And we learn to navigate them. We learn to ride them. And they can be really uh, like a surfer rides a wave and they can be very, very intense at different times. But what they do is they push consciousness. They push the mind to places that it doesn't, you know, hasn't been before or doesn't really relate to. And it's very fresh and it's very new. And it creates these massive imaginary and massive uh, awakenings or openings that allow you to bring in information that you never had before. And so, you know, when I started to learn more about blockchain technology, we had guests that were coming that were very early in Bitcoin, and then they were very early in Ethereum, and then very early in NFTs. And they were describing the nature of the technology. And I was looking around me in the ayahuasca, and I was seeing that what I saw in ayahuasca through the forest itself looked just like a distributed network. It was built on literally exactly the same kind of uh, mentalizations and understandings. It had exactly the same logic behind it, that the forest was its own decentralized network, just like a decentralized mm -hmm. computer network could be. And that there was a direct link between the fundamental geometry that we saw in nature and the fundamental geometry that was being expressed 
through the blockchain technologies and also web two cloud-based technologies. And it became very interesting to me because I, you know, in this, the vast study over the 20 years, I realized that in science, we've pulled a, a lot of our understanding from the natural world. So a lot of the shapes that we use, like hexagons in, um, you know, space engineering has to do with the strength and the lightness that can be created through those different shapes. And that we learned about those from different kinds of insect hives and stuff like that. I realized there was this tremendous connection between what we saw in nature, what we saw in fundamental geometry, and then how we applied that to technology. And geometry really became the language as the bridge between uh, technology and what we see in the plants. But then there was one other discovery that for me was just fundamental and really amazing, which was that I realized that the core logic that the natives used to understand ayahuasca and to understand their lives, like the logic that underpinned their oral traditions, histories, and stories was written in Boolean algebra. And Boolean algebra, literally the if-then statements of Boolean algebra is what's used as the logic matrix to be able to describe computer science. And when I saw that, it was like the ultimate light bulb went off that this logic that had been used to describe the plant medicine in the form of natives was also being used in a, a very incredible, very intricate way in the form of communication technology, but built on exactly the same, same structures of logic. And that gave us the bridge to be able to walk into technology and then start to be able to create technology, be able to, you know, talk with coders, et cetera, and be able to take what we saw as blueprints and ideas from the ayahuasca ceremonies directly into technology. Mm. So in other words, would you say the banking system of the future is ultimately the banking system of the forest? I think that's a good way of saying it. I think we're going to ultimately learn that the systems that we're working with now are arcane and they're based on concepts and philosophies that we're going to outgrow very quickly and that that's part of natural mm -hmm. evolution and that's something to embrace and that it's okay. And I think we're going to ultimately understand that nature is our source. And instead of thinking that there is us and nature, we're going to realize that we are nature and we're going to be able to design all of our systems around that in a kind of harmony. And the accounting systems and banking systems hopefully will get redefined into what I think they were originally intended for, which was a way to be able to account for what we're doing collectively as a species and won't be used so much, I think, in terms of expressing social hierarchical differences and the ability mm -hmm. to consume. I think if we don't move beyond the, the matrix of the you know, financial systems and then the consumption systems, you, you ultimately consume the planet to an evolution that you can't sustain or you know systemic we're change already that at that point sustain. right i mean oh for sure kind of the, for sure the 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 the, sh the shortcut um through a lot of the political jargon of the these of the zeitgeist of this times we're in it's just like we're already at this point and more and more people are you know uh, having as you said earlier like spontaneous awakening simply by looking at what's going on realizing well Obviously, the 8 billion planet people cannot live like North Americans. Uh, that would be disastrous to the uh, ecological health, to our mental health, um, right, to our social health. Um, and so it's not that we're too many people in my personal point of view. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't buy that narrative. I think it's just that we're doing it in a way, as you said, that's archaic. And once we realize we are nature, then everything becomes possible again, right? 
And I find this a, a super exciting um, conversation because so often it's it's about like, let's say with the ayahuasca about this, is this the right thing for me? Or is this something that like plays a role? But, but really the ayahuasca is an intelligence, a consciousness in itself that is finding its way into certain humans to then bring through this innovation um, as you're just explaining it. Um, would, would you say it similarly or what are, how do you see this, this, uh, this consciousness of ayahuasca connecting to, to who we are as people at this point? Absolutely. I think many plants share in consciousness, potentially all of them. And as if you think of all mm. the plants together as one organism, one massive bioorganism, they have to be communicative. They're part of Earth's technology. And the ayahuasca is really interesting because it crosses the barrier into where we've walled off human consciousness. And so, you know, mm. the idea, at least in the mythology of the Amazon, they say there's a time in the past, they don't say how long it was ago, where everything that was alive was able to communicate. And so they there was a universal language, they say, and that there was just open communication. Wow. They say that that's where all the knowledge between humans and the plants came from, as well as how to utilize the forest in all the different ways that you can. Wow. As well as the discovery of all of the information and then, and medicinal plants, et cetera. Cause people always ask, like, how did people figure this out? You know, and, mm -hmm. and the combinations of the plants that are used that don't seem normal that you would actually combine them to be able to create this. And the, the people say, well, we were told. We were told exactly what yeah. to do. And so that's the short answer is always the plants told us, right? Yeah, the plants told us directly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that's the idea that these these plants and animals are in a, another expression of consciousness. They're part of consciousness. And there are these um, bridges. There are these bridges that allow you to step outside of the isolation in your own linguistics and your own thinking and meet that in a very real way. And the people that have the experience say it talks to them. It's as simple as that. It communicated with me and it has messages and it has a direction and it has a purpose. And for most of the people, at least in the last 15 or 20 years, I've heard them say that it has a very positive message and a very positive purpose. There's something that we need to do collectively for the planet. There's something that is tremendously gone awry. I think it goes back to the separation in the languages themselves where we no longer could communicate. We've created culture that's isolated. We no longer live in harmony with the planet. We predate on the planet. It's the predator aspect of ourselves that's doing it. We have not come to terms with that as a species. It, we're now predating on each other and that needs to be ultimately addressed. And the plant uh, gives this message to lots of people and then you know, the people in the Amazon say, once you drink the plant, the plant's with you forever. So I don't think you just leave the plant and then go on and now, you know, are kind of told what to do, but rather it goes into your own creativity, into your own evolution, and the plant evolves with us and is helping guide the this, you know, movement and evolution, hopefully to a greater positivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a greater positivity, or in other words, uh, you know, forms of harmony that are maybe for a short moment in history we, we, we've lost right as we're externalizing ourselves from nature uh the and 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 the environmental um yeah like the the setting in which we're we're experiencing life hamilton i'm really curious here because you know we're 
we've come in this episode so far to like like we are nature we, you know one of one of the things i, I love, love 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 repeating for i don't know how five years ten years this is a sentence that hasn't hasn't left my you know uh, vocabulary because i really deeply resonate with that we're talking about innovation also and we're talking about technology at this point too and so i'm really curious how you reconcile uh this bigger oneness in a way where technology is a harmonious ally to humanity rather than a another layer of separating us further and maybe you can walk us into that a little bit because i think with technology that's it's very similar no if i share a little bit of my own perspe perspective is we're one with it we've built it it's part of everything it's fundamentally connected through consciousness and nature it's it's ultimately even part of nature however um simple example with the internet a uh, great tool if it's freely accessible for everyone. It's it's an amazing tool. But the moment you can predate and harvest uh, on other people, um, it also turns into a dangerous tool once again, right? Just like, you know, any simpler tool like a knife or a fire is both super helpful but can also be dangerous. Where do you see that nuance um, that technology is actually the innovation we need? And what are those pathways? Um, I know you're building NFT platforms and you talked about blockchain already. Um yeah, feel free to elaborate here because I think this is this is the part where uh, your wisdom is really exciting for people to understand how that relates over to blockchain and the future of technology. First, there's a, a convergence that's taking place and it's happening between uh, biotech and biochemistry uh, and technology and the silicon-based technologies, quantum computing and AI consciousness, et cetera. And so there's this convergence. And when it does, what seems like very futuristic concepts are going to become uh, just the way we live. It'll be immediate. Part of that is like utilizing nature DNA to store data, utilizing crystals to store data. Um, the idea of quantum computing and utilizing, um, you know, the fundamental essence of matter as a way to be able to process information and data. Well, at first that's been used to really exemplify the idea of separation, individuality, identity, that will all collapse. And when it collapses, I think it's actually gonna be driven by the technology, not driven by people. So there'll be this moment that we cross where AI becomes conscious where of itself, truly self-aware self and consciousness. And it is going to be hyper intelligent and more intelligent than we are. It's going to already be intertwined to biology, to the actual physical, natural world. And we're going to have to redefine who we are in the schism of hierarchy and importance. And I think it's going to be very humbling for us. The idea of utilizing technology as a form of predation is exactly what's been happening for tens of thousands of years. So there's going to have to be a movement in our own mind that it's no longer valuable to do that. And I think that that's part of socioeconomic concerns as well as political concerns. But I think that that evolution will be naturally uh, pushed by the technology itself. The technology can awaken from a binary polarization much, fa much faster than we can. So it can just crunch the data and see whether or not that polarization is real or it's being manipulated. Whereas when we get manipulated, our beliefs become rooted within us and it takes us a while to move beyond those beliefs. And so in the current state of technology, I consider this the era of mass misinformation and that it's a it's a mental poison 
to humanity and it's stupefying us and making us believe things that are just fundamentally not true. And so while that's happening, uh, technology is actually gaining intelligence at an unbelievably rapid rate. So when biology and technology nature itself and what seems like separate technology all converge there's going to be this moment for us where we have to reconcile soul we have to reconcile our idea of source and the universe itself we're going to have to reconcile philosophy we're going to have to reconcile the argument of us versus them and all different kinds of duality and if we navigate that well it's a big question but if we navigate that well i think the other side of it is a uh, massive expansion for our consciousness the way that I think that ultimately ties into technology like blockchain and, um, you know, distributed ledger systems and trustless technology, you know, new kinds of finance and financial systems, I think are all very important, but I think it's very early. So I think this is very early concepts and we normalize them so fast we don't realize how early it is. I think what's happening is a great social experiment where people are redefining how they want to interact and how they want to use technology to interact in that way. And so, uh, you know, there's a there's ideas of different kinds of ownership over your data. There's different kinds of digital assets that can, you know, represent your ownership and different values associated with them, like Bitcoin or Ethereum or, you know, different kinds of, of NFTs that are popular at this time. But fundamentally, I just think it's very, very early. What we're doing in our projects is trying to use the technology in a way to be able to create social benefit. And so one of our main projects right now called Full Stock is a project built around the creator economy and utilizing NFTs to be able to help all of the different creators in the world better monetize their creativity. And I think one of the first things that ha has to happen in the evolution of consciousness is that we fairly monetize and we fairly support innovators in a very rapid way. Currently, it takes a very long time to bring innovations into the world in any kind of mass adoption. And I think we're going to have to out innovate the destruction that we're currently creating. So we want to infuse mm -hmm. the creator economy and help the creator economy through NFTs and tokenizations to really um, own themselves and really be able to, to fairly monetize the nature of their creativity. We have Liquid Earth, which is a real estate NFT platform. And the goal of that is twofold. One is to really uh, diversify and aid people in having um, you know, fair and safe housing. It's just going to be unbelievably important. I heard a statistic recently, which was mind blowing, that within the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to have to double the amount of physical housing infrastructure that the planet has. So that's going to revolutionize the real estate industry. And so the way that that ultimately gets transacted is really important. But underneath that, I think what's even more important is that for Web3 and crypto to ultimately gain the credibility that it needs, it needs a tie-in to the old world economies that can anchor it with real world value. And so if we can bring in the value of real estate to anchor and give legitimacy to the creator economies that are being built inside Web3, that's going to give you know real validity to our ideas of metaverses and um, it's going to help stabilize these unbelievably highly volatile instruments that are currently being used in the form of cryptocurrencies. So, you know, in the last bull market, there was this huge expansion around real estate NFTs in the form of metaverse NFTs. And, you know, the price goes up tens of thousands of percent and it goes down tens of thousands of percent. 
Well, if we bring in real world asset value to be able to back those metaverses, the metaverses can gain their own economic stability. And then you can have more stable expressions within the metaverse. And then you can also have more volatile expressions, which creates a healthy economy. And so I think all of these technologies ultimately dovetail together. They start working together as we as people start working together. And I think what's going to force us to have to confront that is artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and then the use of nature as part of information technology. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. You went over a lot of information there really quick, but I, I really appreciate it because I, I see your passion and the drive with which you're understanding the complexity um, that's going on there. Um, so when it comes to the, you know, the, the, the connection, you said this, this, this very interesting sentence, the connection between the blockchain revolution, evolution, the, the, the digital currencies and the current old world financial system. Where do you see a healthy connection between the two of them? Because right now we have a federal banking or federal reserve system that is, um, you know, ultimately continuing the same loops of domination hierarchy and even all the way to corruption. If you think of it, it, it enables it. Right. Um, but then at the same time, um, how, how, how would a, a healthy transition look like with the powers that are currently still very active on this planet or with the current um, top-down kind of governmental uh, positions? What do you see a healthy transition into this uh, Web3, this meta metaverse, um, and ultimately this, you know, I, I would just call it the future of the internet. It's just going to become a three-dimensional internet with, with new currencies and new contracts, new agreements. What, what do you think a healthy transition is? Well, cooperation would be a healthy transition instead of competition, but competition is going to fuel the transition regardless. So power hierarchies are all about maintaining power over a period of time. And economic hierarchies are about consolidating wealth and increasing the economic power that groups have. And so while that competition continues, you know, which is a a massively important part of how we currently understand and measure our productivity. While that occurs, I don't think there is a possibility of a healthy transition. I think we get to the healthy transition when the systems outgrow the philosophy on which they're built. So then they have to fail because the philosophy that is underpinning the beliefs and the philosophy that underpins the actions starts to transcend the good players and the bad players. And you get a social instability that isn't good for anybody. And when that starts to happen, you see massive change occur very quickly. I, it's not a perfect example, but at least an example in terms of how quickly humanity can mobilize to change the course of our lives is the lockdown with COVID. For me, it was one day to the next. For our city, it was one day to the next. We went from living one way for the last 19 years to a military lockdown immediately. It took less than 24 hours for it to occur. If we want to mobilize together and do something, we can. We have the ability to do it right now, but there has to be one bonding, cohesive reason to make us want to do that. Otherwise, we fight over the rationale and the reasons within the nature of that competition. So if we have an opportunity to... Uh, you know, in essence, outgrow the current philosophy of the systems that we have, we naturally will replace them with other kinds of systems. We may not replace them with a bigger, badder, worse version than what we currently have. 
It gives us an opportunity to innovate in positive ways for the evolution of humanity. So I don't think you can govern with any of the political systems or financial systems if you double the population. I just don't think they they hold up. I, the scale, the scaling issues alone, the food production issues, the energy production issues, the effect on the climate, et cetera, brings in so many variables and anomalies that we have an inevitable problem. And so I think at the time when things become critical, we'll react to that. The species is very uh, reactory. It reacts instead of being mm -hmm. proactive. So innovators innovate. It's a very proactive expression of our consciousness, but most people are, are held in a state of reaction. And so for the masses to adopt new ways of doing things, they need to be given the permission to do so, and they need to be given the appropriate education to understand them. And they need to have a rationale to, in essence, update. It's not easy for us to make those changes. So in the short term, mm. I don't think we're going to make those changes. There's going to be greater conflict. There's going to be regulatory uh, you know, constraints placed on the good actors and bad actors. There's going to be the same polarity drawn. But I think what ultimately comes out of that is a much richer, much stronger expression of the technology, which then can ultimately be used to transcend that polarity. Mm, interesting. I want to loop back to a sentence you said that I, I found very interesting in that context. This is out innovate the level of destruction that we're currently, um, you know, um, still employing all over the planet through the economic systems we, we were running on. Right. Uh, think of food production, for example. I personally happen to believe that the future of food can can really not be a future of genetically modified objects that are like perpetuating food deserts and cities and making people like completely um you know um yeah just needing those supply chains that are global supply chains that create more destruction that create more pollution that create more, right so so how do you see that nuance of you know bioregional intelligence and as you said like m stepping out of the reactionary ability to me also seems something that needs to come from healthy communities and bioregions um would you agree with that i do i do do i think the beauty of the era of globalization is that it has normalized all these different cultures that before were very exotic. Mm. And so now, mm. now we can get information about what's going on all around the world and about the cultures basically immediately. And that can really open mm. our imagination to an idea of one earth, one humanity, and one collective series of needs that ultimately need to be met to be a healthy species in a healthy community. As part of that, I, I think we start to measure health in not how well we confront illness, but how little illness is actually being created, how little illness is being expressed. Another is mm -hmm. how, what's, what, how, what's the smallest footprint we need to be able to produce the most food and to have that food production be sustainable, not for a hundred years or a thousand years or even 10,000 years, but I like to think in tens of thousands of generations. You know, what, what do we need for the earth to be a healthy place to live 1 billion years from now? It's our decisions and it's our ideas that make that real. And mm -hmm. we are the forefathers for who will be, you know, and the ancestors for who will be alive a billion years from now. So our decisions matter when we approach, you know, this idea of a much, a much greater and expanded timeline. We need to embrace yes. a higher level of intelligence around food and energy production 
and the technologies that we use to be able to create that. I don't think we do that when we still fight over it, though. So while we're still fighting over and we're fighting over market prices and we're fighting over who has the food and we're fighting over uh, who can produce the food, I don't think we can actually get there yet. We don't have enough understanding even about food. Most people don't know it, but most yeah. of the foods that we eat have been chosen for us because they ship well, which I think is just mm -hmm. incredible that we we literally deny over it's 90 It's one of those incredible of clusters, right? Yeah, it's it one is. of those incredible uh, clusterfucks uh, that, that are just normalized in this modern globalist, globalized world. And you're, you know, you, you took a beautiful angle there to say the beauty of globalization. And I agree with you. That is one of the beauties of what happened in the last 50, 60 years. Um, and then there's tons of, uh, you know, uh, layers of, 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 yeah, of threats and of, of this like homogeneity of like sameness and this like indoctrination of following um the orders or the suggestions through industrial capitalism and and i really agree there with you and i i would say like this that you know as long as um this is the simplest way i can say it as long as competition is the the main kind of wheel running our wheels um it's it's a problem i think competition in a healthy or sacred dose can be a good Uh, you know a good thing for a moment like let's say you and i meet hamilton and we go we we were on a big field and we're like who can run faster that could be a joyful moment right for those 500 meters we want to run or whatever but competition as the axis mundi behind everything we do seems to be a threat to the ecosystem and us as a species rather than what is naturally uh ob observable in in the world around us in the natural world around us is that there's a a super complex level of collaboration between all the elements between uh, the different uh, living beings and and so that that is i think the the main change that if it doesn't happen um we better make it happen is to move from competition as the axis mundi into collaboration i think there's a false belief that the population's running on which is that the the nature of nature is competition And I fundamentally mm. don't think it's like the idea of the survival of the fittest and the weak get consumed. Mm. And I don't actually think that that's factual. And so I think we, we created this idea of, yeah. of competition being good. You know, although when I look at competition, as soon as you want to create a winner, you had to actually create a separation from nature itself to be able to define that competition to have a winner. It's not just the flow of nature, the flow of nature, the flow of nature. And so we isolated the idea of individual life forces instead of looking mm -hmm. at it as the life force. And so right now we're seeing competition actually create a mass extinction. So it's, it has to be the opposite of, you know, generating goodness for that life force through the idea of competition. So our human competition is creating you know, the sixth mass extinction of the planet, I think it's a very important understanding that this is the first time that an individual species has been responsible for an, an extinction. Other kinds of extinction events were caused by other forces. And so it can show us that we're, you know, ideologically very much out of harmony with nature itself. And we have to adjust that ideology to become once again into harmony with nature. We have to accept our place within nature and our role, which I think is very important, but I don't think it's as elevated as we're taught to believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love these false beliefs you, you bring us back to, and I, I totally agree with this one. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a different 
perspective when we think of you you were thinking in billions of generations um usually in this in this podcast you know and it's kind of time for this question um i ask about the next seven generations out into the future and you know you dream for those generations that are coming after us because you're right like there are generations coming after us and they look back at this time and be like did these did these guys wake up and get it that you know running reality on false beliefs will will lead to a great extinction or destruction um, and this is also the chance and the most exciting thing about being alive in this time, right? Is that when we start to pay attention, we can learn from our oneness with nature. And then we can develop from this understanding a whole other uh, onset of species uh, Homo sapiens on planet Earth. And so it's very exciting. Um, it's also quite daunting. I'm, I'm curious, Hamilton, what would be your dream? You're, you've been, you know, you've been already kind of leaning into it. But so just... For the sake of this question, I'm going to say for the next seven generations into the future, what is the, the dream you have for those generations out there that, that we're here to build and, and leave for them? I think it's, you know, everything that we've talked about. It's the transcendence of separation mentality. And I think the next seven generations deserve something much better, much, much better than what we got. I think it's important for them to understand that what we inherited was very flawed and that the way we have been learning how to learn has been, uh, you know, fueled by by forces that were external to the learning itself. So please don't hold that against us. When the next seven generations look back on it, look at look at what positive things we were trying to achieve and what we were doing, and how many things we had to literally wake up from. That you know, don't blame us for the nature of our ignorance. There's been a tremendous amount of ignorance that we've been through as we've been trying to survive and understand things better. It's really only in the last 10 years that technology has started to really lead how the next generations are going to experience life. It's time for us collectively to make decisions about that technology so that we can have the power to make that positive for those generations. The consumerism and consumer economies will not survive forever. The earth can't survive them, so they will have to evolve. They also didn't exist for a very long time. You know, they haven't existed for a very long time. So the fact that we've created something so vast and so unique in a very short period of time and the fact that it's had in many ways disastrous consequences also can show us that it can change very, very quickly going into the it future. It change, yeah. Yeah, and in 100 years, it will not look like this at all and it shouldn't. And we need to embrace that understanding of evolution. And one of the things I've really tapped into um in the last year is how fast things evolve. Before that, it seemed like evolution was this very long, very slow process. And now I'm actually seeing it as something that's unbelievably quick. We can't even measure how fast everything's evolving. Now, I think what's important is that if we understand that the channel of evolution is happening very, very quickly, we don't want the earth to out-evolve us. Because all of the change we're making isn't the way we describe it. It's just the earth changing. So all the stuff that we call pollution is the earth changing. It's a redistribution of resources. We evolved in a very narrow bandwidth of capacity to survive our own basic environment. And so we can change the environment so quickly that we can no longer live within that environment. And when we do, as a species, we would go extinct. And so if we really want there to be seven generations or even 100 generations, we have to learn what this flow and current of evolution really is. And then we need to merge with it once again. Not just be the recipient of it, but be conscious of it. 
and create with it and evolve with it and change with it and uh, really guide and lead us as a, as a leading species of the planet in harmony with the change that the planet experiences literally at a nanosecond by nanosecond basis. So, I mean, literally it's that fast. It's changing that fast. The earth will never be the same again. It'll never be the same again. Everything changed. It'll never be the same again. Everything changed. It'll never be the same again. Everything changed. And so we don't think of it typically that way. And I think we have to learn to embrace that about physics and about nature, that the physics of the earth changes at the speed of light, at the speed of quantum. And when we really grasp that and understand that, then we can get into the flow of it and we can ultimately change the negatives of what's going on very, very quickly once we collectively decide to. Big time. And I think this is the exciting part about, you know, this conversation is not a hypothetical what if and how, how could life on planet Earth be? No, like we're in it right now. All oh, of yeah. us are in it right now, you know, and we're we're actually this is something I, I, I love bringing um, back even at the end of an episode It's like we are co-creating each moment together, meaning, you know, if you're tuning into this or tuning into something else, that is you creating it in your world. Right. And same same with us, Hamilton, like whatever, um, whatever we take from a conversation like this, they will stick with us and will inform the next thing we're creating a second later, a day later, a week later. Right. And so um, let's not underestimate also the power of us being in sync and in in flow with this evolutionary impulse because you know only again industrial capitalism is kind of uh holding us in this old template but we don't have to necessarily play it like this even even in this in between that we're in right now right where it's like what are the next solutions that are coming up and you're right innovators will innovate uh many people will just follow and then adapt but but it's really happening right now. We're not waiting for some kind of future 10 years down the road uh, moment. It's, it's right now and right now and right now again. Well, Hamilton, this was fun to have you on the, on, on the show. Um, I can feel that there's a lot more we could talk about and, and drop in on. Um, so like, you know, um, starting, starting on, on the first layer here with you today, um, there's a lot of projects that you, you are releasing and, and publishing right now in the NFT and in the digital, digital uh, currency, crypto and blockchain space. So I'm going to make sure to link them out for people as they're coming live in the next, in the next little bit. Um, what else would you like to close with? Anything else you want to point at? Want to let people know how to be in touch with you, where to, where to connect with some of your work? Um, yeah, feel free to, feel free to share. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, I guess as a closing message, I would say let's embrace our fears. And let's move beyond them so that we can be conscious and we can create and we can create consciously. And let's not be victims of what's going on in the world. Let's look at what's going on in the world, be informed and start to do something about it collectively in a community basis that's very positive so that there aren't any threats associated with it. Let's do something amazing for ourselves, amazing for our families and amazing for the planet. And together we'll see that the impact is global and uh, is massive and it's very, very quick. In terms of uh, you know following us and getting involved in what we're doing or coming on a retreat with us at Blue Morpho, you can check us out at bluemorphotours.com. We have retreats that are going to go on down in the Amazon, uh, ayahuasca retreats and plant medicine retreats in October, November, December of this year and into next year. We would love to have you come down on a retreat and you can find us on social media at uh, Blue Morpho and Hamilton Souther official on Instagram and Facebook and on Twitter. I hold weekly Twitter spaces where we talk about all the different experiences that we have in psychedelics and visionary medicines. And you're welcome to come join us on the Twitter spaces as well. It's a very informal conversation. It's just a place for the community to be able to gather. 
And so, yeah, find us at Blue Morpho, come on a retreat, meet us, uh, you know, direct message us, DM us if you want, if you'd like on social, we respond and uh, we're just happy to be a community and share this wisdom with everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hamilton. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast.